Where all my children are the light Born in the sinning But steady striving to do right My people are warriors All we know is to fight Pray They see God and everything I write yeah. Like that's so bad Okay, we're plugged in And um, for those of you who might have missed my beginning um, I will just say one more time Joined by the brilliant, beautiful, amazing Ijeoma Oluo And she is, um, again, New York Times bestselling author Of So You Want to Talk About Race And someone who schools me whether she knows she is or not on Instagram, on all social media platforms, and again, a Seattle homegirl. So I'm just happy to be with you um, today and for you saying yes again. So um, we talked about Seattle a little bit. Where are you now? Like, where are you based in the city? So we're kind of near the north end. We mm-hmm. had to move with security issues last year. So we kind of keep on the, no one knows quite where we live. Okay, right okay. Um, but um, yeah, we, we kind of rep all around them. My partner's from the south end of the city, Yay. like Beacon Hill. And, okay. you know, um, so we, and my brother lives in um, the Beacon Hill area. Mm-hmm. So we just kind of, we love the whole city. Absolutely. Yeah. You'll find us all over the city. Well, not not right now, but you would have found us all yeah. over the city. I um I grew up in the Seward Park area and um was Holy Names and then UW and then Seattle U for law school. And so like truly home homegirl for real. And you think about um you know, whether it's an Ezel's roll or um, Catfish Corner Sweet Tea. And th- that's the only tartar sauce, by the way, that I would eat. Um, and then, like, even, like, gentrification, watching how much the town has changed because of Amazon coming in and all of the things that have happened. Losing the Sonics, like, there's so many things that, like, growing up there, we had that now you don't have as much. So, um, again, it's always dope to see when there's someone who... Um, I wasn't raised around, but that has very much taken on activism and being an ambassador for the culture in ways that you have. So um, would love to know what else you're working on. I do want to talk about um, the artist piece that you just um, began working through for COVID-19 and making sure that folks were held down and um, safe and good economically whole in the meantime, or at least partially so. Um, But what else are you working on before we get into that? Um, so I'm, I'm working on finishing up my uh, next book right now, Yay! which is, I was so excited coming out the end of this year. It's been a, it's been a process. Um, this book is definitely a little different from my last book. So it's called Mediocre, Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. And <laughs> that is going to be another bestseller. Oh my God. And you got the so poster child in the White House right now. Right? right? I feel like. I could rewrite this book every month, right? Every time people are like, are you going to include this? Are you going to include this? What about this? And there's always a new reason. But yeah, I feel like right now we're living some of the like penultimate consequences of white male mediocrity right now that's endangering everyone, um, Mm -hmm. regardless of race, gender, or age. And it's weird to be writing about it and living it at the same time. It's this... It's really strange because you get no break from it. Um, But I think there's also something validating about recognizing our history, recognizing it's not just you. You're not just unlucky. We're not, you know, that this is a pattern, but also that we have some power to make better choices. Mm -hmm. That's my goal is to get people to look at our systems, to look at what we encourage as a culture and to make different choices as to who we look to for leadership, what we value, how we define manhood and how we define white manhood. Um, And so that's, it's a history of the formation of white male identity for the last 200 or so years Mm -hmm. and it's been interesting and hard but i hope that it will make an impact when it comes out oh you know it will you know and there will be a workbook for that as well like it it must be (laughs) it must be like for the people that are recovering mediocre white men this workbook is for you right (laughs) that would be epic i love it i can't wait so hopefully you'll come back again to do that and we could do something in person with an audience at home like i would love to do that um so the other thing um again before we get into like all of the substance of what's happening right now and the post that you put up recently um is um something i'm not gonna say it's shallow i'm gonna just say it's our outward facing beauty so if you all would note this face over here um with idioma like she's got on this eyeshadow that's like art art 
and perfectly crafted lip all the time. So I'm on Ijeoma's page definitely for the schooling, but also for the makeup. Like, how did you get into that? Because you're so good at it. And you're always like, okay, this is my product. I went through all these products. Like, this is what's going on. I'm like, this is amazing. So I'm always into your thing. I'm like, teach me how to beat my face, though. (laughs) I've always loved makeup. Like, I've always been, like, soothing for me ever since I was a little kid. Um, I got, like, Kevin O'Quan's early book like in the 90s you know when I was back in high school Mm -hmm. and just practice and I find lately especially with the work I do you know when we do this sort of work it's so stressful Mm. you can't think about anything else when you're doing something like makeup it's an art right I always try to say you can't do a winged eyeliner and think about white supremacy right it just won't work (laughs) so it's a good break every day no matter what I'm doing to have some time to like celebrate myself, yeah. get creative, be calm. I have to put all other troubling thoughts out of my head. And I started posting it because I was a proud of you know the things I was coming up with. Mm-hmm. But then it's been fun because people will come up to me and say, you know, I didn't realize you could be smart and care about your makeup. I didn't realize you could be a feminist mm-hmm. and have fun with how you look. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, my feminism is to do what I want. Right. Mm -hmm. To own myself and whether that means no makeup, makeup, whatever I want to look like. And so it's been fun to watch people say, you know, it's helped bring this back to my life. Yeah. Like I thought I had to set it aside. I was a serious person who didn't care about lipstick. Mm -hmm. And it's brought this little bit of personal joy back. And I think right now, especially more than ever, I think I'm even more like religious about it because Mm -hmm. I need that time to know that like I'm still here. I still care about myself. I'm still worth that care. And it's all for me, you know, no one, no one is seeing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's my partner and my kids. Um, and, you know, I, my partner is very really sweet. He usually tells me, I like how you look today, but my Aww. kids, you know, I don't think they would notice um, what I did. So it's been, um, it's definitely been there for me, mm-hmm. you know, and I think we have to find those things that are there for us, especially in hard times right now. Yeah. So speaking of um, the things that we're finding to do and the things that are bringing us joy, what else are you doing besides beating the hell out of that face? That face is good. It's just good. It's just good. That's oh, another thing. You. In case you get run out of book ideas, the oh. next thing could be makeup tutorials. You will be a YouTube sensation. Because it's so good. (laughs) But in addition to that, what else are you doing to bring joy to your life and to your family right now? You know, one of the things we did, you know, Seattle was one of the, was the first U.S. city hit with the outbreak. So we've been over, we've been for three weeks now in the house. Mm -hmm. And um, the first thing I did when I realized, okay, we're not going to meet, this is going to be bad. um, I ordered board games. And we're playing old school. Like we were playing Clue the other day and seeing like my 18 year old get super strategic about Clue was hilarious, <laughs> right? You know, uh, we were playing Exploding Kittens. We were playing, having, you know, it, that's brought some like real childlike joy into the house. Yeah. So, you know, when we feel really stressed, we all hang out and uh, we've been like, it's been real old school stuff, making Rice crispy treats, you know, oh. and just, you know, hanging out with each other and also, you know, trying to find that time alone, which is hard with four people in the house um, to just be, learn how to say really clearly, like, mm-hmm. I need you to leave me alone for a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to sit in a corner, you know, and, and do my thing. Um, but that's definitely helped. My family has you know, it's been wonderful to, in that sense, to embrace that. And especially when you have kids, you're so worried about how they're taking this mm-hmm. and we can't tell them everything's going to be fine, but we can definitely put some normalcy in that sends the message that we're still here, that right now, everything, we are okay. Yeah. And so doing little things like that, cooking together, we've been eating, you know, more meals at the table yeah. uh, has been really helpful. I love that. I love that. And it is so good. It's um, there was a meme on Instagram. I don't know if you saw, but it was like, um, you know, us before quarantine and everybody was like in the house on their phones. And then it was like uh, us during quarantine and like it was a family outside riding their bikes and walking. And it is kind of a trip how it took something like this to force us to realize like our lives matter and our health matters. And like maybe you shouldn't hit Postmates so much. Ijeoma, you have mm-hmm. to, I'm just going to confess because I feel like you're a good accountability partner. I had a straight up Postmates addiction, straight up, <laughs> right? Now I'm, I'm a germaphobe, so I've been cooking like doggone near everything at home with the boo. So it's like, it's funny that you're 
<laughs> you're like, you know what? Like you're really. And then I always tell young people like, really think about, cause they're like, well, what should I do? Like basically trying to pick a career. And I'm always like, oh, you know, if you took money, if money was off the table, if it didn't matter, if money wasn't an option, what would you do? And to me, it's interesting that this particular time is forcing us to think through that too, because money is not an object because it ain't there. Right. And it's like, all right, what would you create for yourself if it wasn't on the table? And it's like, Mm -hmm. wow, I'm watching what I'm you know, like where my passions are pulling me, talking to you all and having these really incredible conversations with people I respect are like, this is like what I want to do. I want to, you know, talk to y'all and let people see how dope you are. And, you know, how can I lift that up? That is exhilarating to me. And it's not my mm-hmm. normal day job, you know? So it's like, wow, how that happens. Anyway, that was not a question. But- yeah, no, it's a, it's an interesting thought because I feel like we have, there's these two layers to that, right? There's one of, I think this is definitely pointing out we all have a minimum we have to meet financially to be able to weather a crisis, right? Mm-hmm. And so many people, especially like in the arts where I am, have don't have that. And so like the ease, especially with the success of my book, that we've been able to financially weather this mm-hmm. is amazing. And then seeing so many of my peers who've been devastated three weeks into this financially and, you know, do not have money for rent, do not have money for meds. I'm like, oh, we need a better safety net socially, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. But also I found like I, you know, I grew up really poor. And so when I, when the book was successful and my speaking engagements were successful and I had this savings, I was always like, okay, you know what, we're going to put it towards this or we're going to do this. And I had, you know, I wasn't touching it. And this nest egg I have now, I realize like my relationship with the money has changed in this crisis. Mm. Where I'm very much like, you know what? If we go through all of this because it keeps my family, my brothers, you know, my cousins afloat, that's what this money was for, right? Mm. It wasn't for what can I do for the house? What can I get this? It was at, at its core for keeping the people that I love, for keeping my community going. Mm-hmm. And that was a fundamental change for me because I was for a long time like, what is this for? Is this for trips? Is this for leisure? And like, oh no, at its core, mm-hmm. right now it's for making sure that we all, you know, and, and my partner and I talked about that and we we're like, we were always talking about the money. We both grew up, you know, pretty poor and talking about what happens if it disappears tomorrow and we realized, oh, it probably will disappear from any other reason there's something like this where we realize it has to go to what matters. Yeah. And and that's a fundamental shift for me. And I don't know what my relationship's going to be to money whenever this is done. Mm. What's it going to, you know, what is my money for? Where am I putting it? Am I going to hold it for something? Or am I going to try to find those emergencies that people are in mm. every day, regardless of what's happening out in the world? Mm. So it's been interesting, yeah, to see the way I think we're all questioning our relationship to this economy, to money, to what brings us joy, yeah. to what gives us purpose. You know, a lot of people, if your job's gone and you thought that gave you your purpose every day, but you're at home, then what gives you your purpose? Mm. And these are important questions. And yes, I hope that are. we are all like gently asking ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, um, growing up poor and you've talked um, a lot about struggling with food insecurity as a child. Um, What ways do you think that we can all be intentional about whatever our nest eggs might be, the size of that nest egg, whether there is a nest egg, what ways can we be super intentional about helping um, young people and poor families during this particular pandemic, especially if we know the government isn't going to be the solve all. Like it's not going to be even with this $2 trillion bill, I think, um, stimulus Mm -hmm. bill. So what ways could could we all be leaning in as a community? I think it's important to reach out to people. Mm -hmm. One thing I've definitely realized is that there are a lot of people who aren't reaching out because we have this kind of myth in America that you make it all on your own, right? It's just completely Girl. untrue. Yes. And, you know, and so people right now are already making decisions only three weeks in as to eating two meals a day versus three, you know, and reach out to the people that you think may be hurting from this and just ask when someone mentions that they had a job cancellation online, I'm sending the ends and say, you know, how are you? You know, like I'm touching in with my friends and my family that I know we're struggling. Do that proactively. Uh, reach out to elders. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing like I didn't even realize my 
sister texted last night that my 85 year old grandma who lives in Kansas has been driving around trying to find toilet paper and disinfecting wipes because people no. have been hoarding it. Right. I was gripped with fear. Right. And immediately getting online because I could have, I could have been sending her supplies for weeks. Mm. It didn't occur to me to like reach out. You know, I didn't think she, you know, I didn't realize she wasn't going to reach out until she was absolutely desperate. So reach out to the elderly because they should not be out looking for supplies, right? They're, we should be making sure that things are delivered to them. Even though stores are opening up these hours, it's still unsafe for them to be outside. Reach out to your friends who are disabled, who have chronic illness. Make sure they have what they need, you know, um, shelters. I've definitely heard from shelters. Mm -hmm. So shelters are being a really completely forgotten in this crisis. Mm -hmm. And a lot of you know, I, a friend of mine who um, whose partner works at a shelter for young women, a lot of these young women are incredibly immunocompromised because of the situations they've been in. Yeah. And the volunteers can't work with them safely, right? And so they don't have any masks. They don't have any cleaning supplies. They can't find bleach. So... Look at look through your stores. You know, if you have if you're an artistic person, chances are you have some gloves somewhere. Chances are you might have a mask or two. Right? Mm -hmm. I just have it from doing my own nails. I had mm -hmm. two boxes of masks, and so I was able to send those out to shelters. Mm -hmm. um, you know, reach out and ask people what they need. Mm -hmm. Be proactive about it. The need is great, but a lot of people aren't asking because they're used to being told that they have to figure it out themselves. Yeah. And so look around and see what you got where you feel, you know, comfortable and safe and share. Yeah. If we get to that point, there will be enough for everybody. Mm -hmm. But we, we got to look out for the people who not only aren't asking, but also don't have the access to the infrastructure, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of our elderly don't have the ability to order things online and have it delivered. So, you know, find out what their address is, have stuff delivered to them, drop something at their door, you know, mm -hmm. um, don't, don't put people in more precarious situations to have to go find things when they really should be at home. Oof, I'm like, literally, I teared up hearing about your grandma. And I'm, now I'm just like, I'm sitting here partially like just in guilt about I haven't reached out to like even neighbors. And I know I have elderly neighbors. I've been so worried about my parents and I'm like now super emotional about it because I know like this woman across the street, like her husband died. I, I haven't even checked on her, you know, like. And part of it is like, oh, you don't want to go anywhere. You don't want to like compromise anybody. And you also like, again, I'm a germaphobe. So I haven't wanted to like talk to anybody or knock on a door or, you know, whatever. But like I should. And um, again, just like our first conversation ever, like, thank you for that accountability, because it's just like, dang, if we all just checked on one person, at least we could really mm -hmm. probably make a big difference. Um so thank you. That was a hard truth. I wasn't ready. I was not, I was not prepared for that, but it's, it is, it is just that simple. Like us being able to do that could be the matter of life and death or whether or not somebody eats. So like, thank you. I'm going to pull myself together, but like it's needed. And you, you know, for me, I've been treating this as like, oh, it's scary, but it's still far enough removed from me where my parents are good, even at home in Seattle. And like my family's fine. We're doing a check-in texter, but like there are people who don't have that support. And from my point of privilege, right? Like I should extend a little bit and sacrifice to make sure that somebody else is okay. Um, and I've just focused so much on like, Oh, let me make sure I'm putting content up that people can relate. And I just haven't done that. And so again, I'm just, I'm thankful for that accountability because I think it's it's the path forward for all of us if we can all do that and take it as our responsibility because clearly this government is not going to be responsible mm -hmm. enough to handle all of it. Like I hear you loud and clear. Marching orders are clear. I'm on top of it. <laughs> and thank you. And no, thank you for making me cry. Now they're going to be like, oh, you look like you have the red eyeshadow on this um, <laughs> coronavirus. But I was crying, y'all. Um <laughs> So the other thing, since we're already talking about the emotional stuff, there's a post that you put up on Instagram the other day that really just um, struck a chord for me. And I just want to read what you said. Um, this is what I reached out to you about. It says, for a lot of us, this crisis is bringing up past trauma around food insecurity, chronic illness, housing insecurity, and so much more that we weren't prepared for. If you find that suddenly a long hidden hurt and scared part of yourself seems to be taking over at times, remember that you are not alone. 
to the point we were just talking about. And remember that the part of you that says you cannot get through this is speaking from a time when you thought that you couldn't get through what was happening, but you can because you did. You are not just the you who thought you couldn't make it through. You are the you who did make it through. That's so good. Like, ugh. I love this because um, there's the first part that I think we really need to work through, which is the part around food insecurity and housing insecurity and illness, right? Like there are people all around us now who we know or are a third degree removed from who are suffering because they have an underlying condition. Some of them didn't know they had, right? Um when you t- when you think about past trauma, are there other um, past traumas either because of how you grew up or because of experiences you've had along the way that you're experiencing now? I know you talked about food insecurity, but are there others that have come up for you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, food insecurity was definitely the biggest. Mm-hmm. Um, chronic illness, though, as well. I battled a chronic illness um, for most of my life wow. uh, that I really thought would end my life early. And I, I wrote a little bit about it. Um, uh, and I had contracted hepatitis C as an infant for a blood transfusion and just went through treatment about three years ago. Mm. And so until then it was kind of the thought was, you know, this is a disease that kills more people than AIDS in the U S. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I was 20 when I found out I had it and that feeling of you could have something that could be the end of it. And that feeling of constantly checking every bodily change to wonder, are you sick? Are you getting sick? Mm -hmm. You know, um, that sort of trauma was really um, difficult. That place was difficult to be back in, you know? And I think I'm hearing from a lot of people as well who have a lot of trauma around chronic illness who are saying, yeah, this feels like when I couldn't leave home for two months because I was ill, This, this feels like when I was in chemo, Um, And it's bringing a lot of that up. I think also for many people who are disabled, Mm. it's a double trauma of, yes, what they've experienced as disabled people, but also to watch everything they've advocated for, everything they've asked for suddenly be handed to people who are abled, um, work allowances, you know, consideration for safety, for health, paid time off, being able to work from home. All of these things that they've been begging for to be able to be out in society that society has said no to. Mm -hmm. Everyone forgets we will all become, if we are lucky, old, the same. Hmm. And the moment that comes for us a little sooner than we thought, suddenly we care about issues of being old and disabled because we forgot that that will be us no matter what one day if we are lucky. And for you know, uh, over a third of the population who is disabled, for our elderly population who is long felt ignored and abused, this can feel like a real slap in the face because they're still not prioritized. We're prioritizing what they've asked for, mm-hmm. but for ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we aren't even looking right now at hospitals making decisions of who lives and who dies based on what they deem is viable. In Washington State, disability networks are challenging these rules because. They are very much afraid that if you have a disabled person, that they'll be viewed as less viable, less worth saving Mm -hmm. than someone who's deemed, quote unquote, healthy. So I think that right now we are all facing a lot. I know friends who are in really abusive childhood situations Mm -hmm. who are very triggered by the thought of families being stuck indoors at home together. Yeah. Right. And and that's real. And, and my fear for these families is real. My fear for these children, especially in these households, is very real. And I think what happens, though, is we don't know how to recognize it, right? We don't know how to recognize what, because we're being triggered by a real thing, right? We have the real danger and then the trigger it brings up. And so a lot of people are feeling like, why is this hitting me so hard when I'm healthy right now, when I feel safe right now? Why am I crying all the time? Why am I so scared? Mm -hmm. It's because we're also dealing with this historic trauma or for many people, current trauma Mm -hmm. that's happening in their life that this is adding to. Man. Yeah. And so the thing that I, um, again, hadn't considered, um, I'm trying to figure out somebody brought it up last week about the domestic violence concerns that people are now being forced to share space and where their shelter could have been worked during the day or school during the day. What are some things that we can offer 
you know, people who are in domestic violence situations and now, you know, they're quarantined with someone who they are concerned could take their lives or brutally beat them. And then there's no hospital. Like there's so many things that come up with that. It's like, where do you go? Where do you send them? Because shelter is not really a good option either because they're probably over capacity at this point. So what happens? Definitely. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's scary. And I think we have to look at, too, where do we bring in services if we hear something happening with our neighbors, if you're in an apartment. Um, A couple of things I would say, we have to be reaching out to each other. We have to be creating social pathways for people to say when they need help, right? So make it clear. We do need to be supporting emergency services and shelter services that are providing, that are still operating Mm -hmm. and providing places for people to go. But we also need to be asking and talking about things like um, online counseling services. We need to be looking at things like financial support. We need to look at what exacerbates violent situations, right? So oftentimes, um, you know, instability in on safety um, is increased when someone loses their income, right? Yeah. When you're stressed about what you're going to do, when you're stuck without any other social release. Mm-hmm. So increasing talking to people, getting people who may feel isolated in these unsafe situations talking, Skype your friends that you feel like may not be in a safe situation, mm-hmm. give them another outlet, right? Ask how they're doing, make sure they have enough food, make sure that all of these things that might trigger a fight or an argument, that whatever we can do to try to mitigate that, but then also really support um, the shelters and the first line services, your YWCAs and things like that. They're still operating, still providing services to people. Mm-hmm. Um, your you know, trans um, and LGBTQ support networks that really are going into overtime right now mm-hmm. to make sure that LGBTQ youth especially are not in stuck in abusive yes. situations. Um, so make sure that we're supporting them and post, post numbers, post the hotlines for your area. Um, and just keep reaching out to people. But really, we also fundamentally, I feel like in these situations, need to be talking about how we're supporting families. Yeah. We need to be talking about making sure it is very easy for all of these students who are home to get a safe and healthy lunch, um, to get yeah. breakfast, um, make sure that we are reaching out and providing links for them to have things to do so that they aren't so that if they want to isolate, maybe through their computer, through their phone, in a way that gives them a little bit of escape that we're providing it, but we got to reach out. And then we also have to be much more aware of when we hear or see a situation that looks violent. And we have to start talking about, as a community, how we're going to intervene, whether we intervene. You know, I hate bringing the law into anything, but looking at... Yeah what sort of risks we have. Um, Look at the domestic violence services for your city. See what their response is. Do they send an officer over or do they send an officer with a counselor over, right? Mm -hmm. That can make a difference as to how these outcomes work out. Um, But be more vigilant because these situations can get really explosive. And we definitely saw some stories in China from this lockdown of of families that were stuck in situations like this. And I don't want people having to walk out and endanger themselves out in the streets because nobody else helped them. So look at the infrastructure, ask your city, you know, ask your city council members what's available, start reaching out in that way. A lot of town halls um, and city council meetings have moved online. So start asking questions. What sort of domestic violence um, situation, you know, support do we have in the city? Have them think about it because they're not prioritizing it if we aren't asking about it. So ask about the infrastructure because that's really going to be the best way. You mentioned um, some of the cases you saw in China, and I want to pivot for a second to a, so you want to talk about race moment. Um mm-hmm. to what happened um, with the way or what is happening with the way um, people of Asian American descent are being treated in this country. I think as a direct result of um, Donald Trump calling coronavirus, the Chinese virus, Um, talk about that a little bit. What are we seeing in this country and what are the things that those of us who are not um, Asian American can do to kind of empower and protect um, folks in this community who haven't done anything but lived their lives in their skin and as a result now are being um, put in harm's way? Yeah, it's definitely been scary. We have a very large Asian American population here yep. in Seattle, I'm sure you know, and people are afraid to go out and buildings are being vandalized. People are being yelled at in grocery stores and 
being physically confronted and attacked out in public. Um, and it is terrifying. It is wrong. I would say a couple of things. We have to be very clear about our language. Um, it is not xenophobic to attack Asian Americans. It's racist, mm-hmm. right? Xenophobia is for people outside of this country, outside of our culture. Asian Americans are American people. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just, it is racism. It is violent racism. We have to be willing to step up. We have to be willing to be that safety barrier. Um, we have to document, we have to make sure that our police forces are taking these things seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, here, one of our, you know, in the city of Bellevue near Seattle, the police were saying, well, there is an increase of Asian Americans talking about what they're facing day to day. There's only, they've only had one police report. And it makes sense that communities of color aren't going to go to the police, right? Um, But the truth is, is that this has to be taken seriously. We have to know that there is something structurally keeping people safe from this sort of violence. Mm -hmm. And especially when we aren't out walking the streets where you don't know you have the safety of a crowd behind you. Um, Definitely speak out publicly against it. Definitely do not share um, video and quotes of the president talking and saying these things with your friends without any blatant saying this is absolutely racist put trigger warnings in front of it just like you know we as black americans i hate seeing violence against black people just dumped in my feed Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. like like i don't know um it's my life i don't need to you know i'm looking at something and i'm hit with this reality that i know you know um the same thing is happening to asian americans right now so if you are not asian american don't send out for shock value these videos and these photos mm. without any sort of warning. Instead, be proactive mm. about talking about love, balancing that hatred out there. Talk to people who have power about how we talk about these things. So if you're in an area where school is still happening, absolutely reach out to the schools that your kids are going to and say, what messaging are you putting out there? Mm. What resources do you have to protect these children? Mm. One thing I loved was watching my school district My son's school district didn't put out a single update about this virus without a lengthy paragraph talking about how this has nothing to do with national origin and giving resources for parents who are, you know, whose kids are experiencing any bullying to reach out to. We need to normalize that. Mm -hmm. We need to be asking city officials to be giving those resources out. We need to be celebrating Asian American businesses. Mm -hmm. So when you're shopping online, look, Amazon is going to be just fine through this, right? All these big mail order companies are going to be just fine through this. But we walk down to this little market that's owned by an Asian family and they are stocked with everything and no one is coming in. Mm -hmm. And I need to know they're going to be fine through this, right? So support businesses that are being targeted with your money, with your dollars. Um, Start sharing links of, you know, Asian American restaurants that deliver, right? Mm -hmm. So that way you can get those delivered. Start breaking down that stigma because you can find at many of these markets, you can still find your toilet paper. You can still find your bleach. You can find and all probably the hand sanitizer, right? Like- right. We went there and we were like, oh my God, there's toilet paper everywhere and you can't find it anywhere in the city, right? Mm-hmm. So support people. That's what we're going to get your grandma's toilet paper is your mom. We got Exactly. I know. Oh, God. I'm so glad we finally found some for her, but it took me hours. And stop hoarding supplies. Oh, my God. Stop hoarding supplies. People, okay. That's Can we talk about that? Anything. Let's please talk mm-hmm. about that for a second. So I'm definitely a hoarder. Mm-hmm. I do not have a garage full of can sanitizer, though. I don't know if you saw that guy, like that whole mm-hmm. like expose on him like i'm not doing that and not doing it to sell but i definitely have like 18 rolls of paper towels i definitely have like a 24 pack of toilet paper i just don't know how long this is gonna last and like if the stores close down so what's the balance and i know this is not what we're talking about but since you brought it up what's the balance between like hoarding and being like extraordinarily greedy and being safe like what's the Let's have a spectrum here. Am I safe? What am I doing? (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I think that's what people are are struggling with. So Mm -hmm. I'm not one of those people who's like, I don't believe in demonizing people who are stocking up because I do believe there's a lot of trauma and genuine fear behind it. I will say this. Don't expect to get through this entire crisis without going to the store, right? Because doing that, what you're doing is creating this backlog of supplies where people who don't 
remember the privilege of the ability to do that. Right. So like when we went shopping, I thought I got four people at home. Okay. What would get us through? I looked at how long it takes to get groceries. It's taking us about eight days for groceries to be delivered to our house right now. So I need to know I can get through about 10 days Mm -hmm. of staples. What would that take to feed a family of four? Right. I, I know that you know, we need to get through two weeks of toilet paper. Okay. You know, what is this? And it's all increased, right? Because we're all at home all at the time. At home all day. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's kind of where I'm like looking at is about two weeks at a time of supplies. Mm-hmm. If we, if we all do that, then yeah. the, chain, the chain's still working, right? These things are still being produced. They're being sent out. The problem is, is that people are buying five months worth, right? And we didn't ramp up. We didn't know that was coming. Mm -hmm. Another thing that we can definitely do to to kind of ease the burden, at least that I found, is Mm -hmm. when I placed my last order, I started reaching out to people that I knew, like my mom and other people who weren't going to be able to order. And I asked them what they needed as well. And I ordered for them. And then I'm just dropping bags off at their door. Mm -hmm. So that way we are, you know, decreasing the load on the system, you know, less deliveries makes it a lot easier for people to get what they need, Mm -hmm. but find that balance, be comfortable. If you find you have extra and you're like, okay, this is going to be five weeks of supplies. And you see someone online saying that they don't have a single roll of toilet paper and they're wiping their butt with a towel, reach out for them. Send them some of your toilet paper. Mm-hmm. Be flexible, right? Let go of some of that. And definitely, if you're holding things that are urgent, if you're not leaving your house, you don't need 10 bottles of hand sanitizer, right? Yeah. But the people who are delivering your groceries, the people who are working in these frontline jobs, they absolutely need it. I have a friend who is delivering groceries. She went through 15 packs of wipes because she has to wipe down everything that she's delivering. Mm. And now she doesn't have anything, so she's putting herself at risk. And I know people who are like going out once a week and they've got 10 packs, right? So look at that, you know, see what you need um, and shift to less traditional items really helps as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we are doing things like oat milk instead of regular milk. So that way there's a little more of that out there, right? Um, Finding out all these different ways that we can cut down um, so that we aren't all going for the exact same things, mm-hmm. but it is a balance. And mostly I think if we talk to each other and make sure that, you know, you sh- that we are allowing everyone to kind of meet their needs. Mm-hmm. And just because we may have the financial security to buy up three months worth of goods, I think that that makes it even more important that we don't, yeah. because even when things get scarce, we will be okay. We will be able to pay to find the thing. Yeah. But people who can't even buy a whole week's worth of supplies right now because their job just got cut, we're making it harder for them because we bought everything off the shelves, right? And that, that was affordable. So that's kind of where I'm at. And it is hard. I can't say there's an exact, right? I can say we're learning. So adjust, do your initial grocery shop. And if your kids didn't eat all of one thing and ate a ton, shift, you know, what yeah. you get and don't keep getting the same things and, and try to um, just be prudent. And give what you're not going to eat. If you've mm-hmm. got too much of something, reach out to a neighbor, drop the bag off at their door, and make sure that we are definitely sharing it around. Mm-hmm. There was a post that I saw um, online. I think Kerry Washington, clearly I've been on the gram, but Kerry Washington mm-hmm. put up a picture of um, like an empty supply shelf for WIC. And was like, if you know that this is WIC eligible and you can afford to get something else because you're not using WIC, don't buy that. And I was like, that's a really good call. I agree with that. And I, I shared it. And so that's one thing where I'm like, OK, I'll do that. But I'm I'm absolutely the friend who um, my friend Katie, also from Seattle, says if there's ever a national disaster, we're all going to Angela's house like that's been a thing. So I don't know if right now is the time because I'm going around like, see, I've been telling y'all like I've always been the person that's, <laughs> you know, that stocks up to the point of like everything is expired in the pantry. <laughs> like It's just it, it really is a problem. And so for me, um, I've always been like, I think maybe in my past life, I lived through the Great Depression or something because nobody can understand why I grew up you know, pretty well off. Like my parents didn't struggle. We fed everybody. My dad was the guy that would fry 13 turkeys and then take them around to the neighborhood Mm -hmm. for Thanksgiving. Um, it's just, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know where this from it, Gio. I don't, I don't know, but I'm going to try to work through it. I hear your plan. It sounds like a really good one. I'm going to try to implement it. Cause I'm also (laughs) to just be honest, like I threw a lot of fresh produce away last week. 
not good. And I, I, that was like a time where I was like, okay, I need to know how to do this right. Because the other problem is not just a hoarding problem. Like I overcook. It's two of us in this house Mm -hmm. right now. Why am I cooking Mm -hmm. for 13 people? I don't know Mm -hmm. how, like if when I do gumbo, our gumbo is, it's a huge pot. I really like, I have to like reduce Mm -hmm. this recipe to an eighth of what it is for it to make sense. So that's (laughs) hard. But anyway, um, I also wanted to ask you about, um, and I know I can't keep you much longer, but I wanted to ask you about, um, communities of color really, um, experiencing the brunt of what is coronavirus. You know, um, speaking of talking about race and all of this, these are things that right now um, folks don't understand how racism will really show up, like really, truly show up in a time like this when you're in crisis. And you can see the vast amount of differences that exist economically and in our schools that our schools literally have to operate um, as uh, service agencies. Right. And that's not something that's happening, happening in rich white communities. So talk to us a little bit about how a virus like this or a pandemic like this exposes what is really true and what we know to be true about race and racial um, I guess the the racial divide, the economic divide, especially that exists because of racism and oppressive systems. Absolutely. So I would say a couple of things that are really important to keep in mind is the way our economy is set up right now. The majority of the people who are providing us the services we need to be able to stay at home are people of color. Right. People of color are more likely to be your food delivery people, your food service workers, your warehouse workers. And they are getting sick left and right. You know, a black man in his um, 50s at Boeing just died, you know, and I'm watching them. A a colleague of mine in Detroit um, does community work um, who was, I think, 42 just died. Um, Another a couple of other things, too, is. Our relationship with a racist healthcare system Mm. means that many of us have these pre-existing conditions and we don't even know it. And so I'm reading these stories about 35-year-old black women, 42-year-old black men dying from this disease. And they say, to to our knowledge, they had no pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that is based on our relationship with the medical system, right, that pathologizes us, that is blatantly racist towards us that discourages us from coming in when we have an issue. And so a lot of us have problems. A lot of our neighborhoods are in areas where we are more likely to have asthma and respiratory issues that put us at increased risk. Um, And so that scares me. We have to be very vigilant with our community, talking about staying at home, taking this very seriously, because not only are we more likely to have some of these um, pre-existing conditions that will increase our risk of death, we are also more likely to get substandard treatment when it is time to go in, right? We are not going to be as prioritized. People aren't going to take us as seriously when we come in. Mm-hmm. And so we have to make sure that we aren't getting this. And also that we are looking out for people who are more vulnerable. We are also more likely to be houseless and housing insecure. Mm-hmm. So what does this mean for getting services to our homeless communities who are oftentimes for their own safety have to live in close proximity to other people, right? Mm-hmm. And don't have access to any sort of sanitation, not even soap and water. What does it mean when all of our park bathrooms are closing, quote unquote, for the safety of the public? But that means that homeless people don't have a place mm-hmm. to wash their hands or take a shower, right? So looking at that, talking about that, what does it mean to set up safe areas for people who need access to sanitation to get it? Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to school, here in Seattle, we are notorious for undereducating our children in a way that's ridiculous for as wealthy as we are, right? Because everything is based on income. So our districts have high majority black and brown students, don't have nearly as many supplies. Our wealthy districts, they have been for multiple weeks now distance educating their children, Mm -hmm. right? They can do that for a couple of reasons. One, because all of their students can have laptops or tablets in their homes. Mm -hmm. They all have internet connections. They have parents who are staying at home and they can stay at home and pay attention to this. In our black and brown communities, a lot of these kids are in daycare if their parents are frontline workers, don't have steady internet, don't have laptops at home. 
we have to look at that and make sure that if we are going to have set expectations, if we are going to have our kids get through this, that we don't have wealthy kids who get through a year fully educated, meeting all their requirements, heading off to college, mm-hmm. and black and brown kids who are a year behind, right? We have mm-hmm. to look at that and demand yeah. equal education this for our students, equal opportunity. If your school district is going to try to educate kids, if our state is going to educate kids, then where are you going to get these laptops from? Where are you going to get this internet from? Where are you going to reach out? How are you going to work with daycare centers to make sure that there's independent learning time? You know, all of these things have to happen. Um, And so I, I worry about that as well, just seeing the racial differences in what kids are already learning right now, already forging ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as gig economies, right? We are often more likely to be working in these sort of gig economies, um, economies that aren't um, documented in a way that makes us eligible for assistance that is coming out. I worry about our undocumented community yeah. who isn't going to be getting these checks and this assistance and who have lost their main sources of work, right? Which is this kind of gig work, this daily work. Mm-hmm. Um, all of our work centers that provide, that help um, immigrant communities find work are shutting down due to safety. So give some money that way. Like they're mm-hmm. putting together funds. Casa Latina here in Seattle, it's a day work center that gives, you know, helps you connect for daily work. Um, a lot of people are undocumented or new immigrants. They've had to shut down. So send them money so they can put money in the hands of people who have no other way of getting funds. People are asking where their check is coming from without realizing that a lot of people of color are not going to ever see a check. And they're completely disqualified from every bit of security that's being rolled out. So what are we going to do to look out for them? Mm -hmm. What are we to ask our representatives to do as well? It can't just all be us all the time. We have to also demand as much as we would demand for ourselves, if we feel lucky enough to have that security, demand it for your kin and say, we all need to get through this together. No population is expendable in this. Mm. And so far, you know, the focus is only on, you know, workaday people, which is important, but so many people of color fall outside the margins of this kind Absolutely. of this this dialogue and we have to make sure that we're not losing them it's also really important that we look at the situations in our prisons mm-hmm. increase the yeah. demand to release low-level non-violent offenders now yeah this is spreading through prisons and correction centers it is spreading through immigrant detention centers mm-hmm. we need to demand the release of people we need to demand that they have supplies we need to demand accurate reporting of who is getting sick mm-hmm. we need to know that people are getting to hospitals when they need to that they are not being deprioritized we should absolutely not be holding people in close quarters unsafe, unsanitary quarters for weed offenses, you know, for all these basic things that so many black and brown people are locked away from. These people need to be released now. And it's being done all over the world and it's not being done here. And that is shameful. Yeah. We're of the last far too often in places where we should be first. Um, And to that end, I know we kind of started and had a middle point on the things that we need to be doing. So on that and given your leadership on the Seattle Artist Fund, are there things that we can continue to do to support the artists um, that you were hoping to reach um, through that fund? And what can we do to support what you're doing with that effort? Yes. So we are, we have partnered with Langston Seattle, which is a historically black art center in Seattle to distribute these Mm -hmm. funds. They've been so wonderful. They've been handwriting checks, right? Because everyone's at home mailing out checks and PayPal payments. And we have been sending as much as we can, but we desperately need more funds for over a month now. Every single gig in the city has been closed. So all of our working artists, our teaching artists, our creatives, our musicians, not only are they out, they don't qualify for unemployment. Mm-hmm. Many of them aren't going to qualify for these checks that are ro- they're supposed to be rolling out from the federal government. Yeah. They aren't qualifying for arts grants that are only going to organizations. Mm-hmm. And so they have nothing. People are already skipping out on medications they desperately need. People are already making mm-hmm. decisions about whether they go with their light bill or their phone bill. You know, Ooh. we desperately need more funds. If you go to my Twitter or my Facebook um, or my Instagram, you will find a link in my bio, um, you know, all over my page of where you can we donate. We'll put it, it up really on the podcast too, just so you know, we'll make wonderful. sure that's up. Yeah. 
and it will match because we're partnered with Langston. So if you have a company matching, if you need, if you want it to be tax deductible, it will be. But the need that we have right now, we are barely, you know, we're giving only a portion of what people need. But we have over 1,700 artists who have reached out who have lost all of their income for the foreseeable future. Wow. And we're just trying to keep them fed, trying to keep them safe, trying to keep them housed. How much and have anything, you raised, Ijeoma? How much have you all raised? We have raised over three hundred thousand dollars. That's so great, but it's not and enough. It's been I know it's, not, it's not. Yeah, it's not enough for the need that we have. It's not enough to keep seventeen hundred people in yeah. rent and food and groceries for even a month. Yeah. So whatever people can give, we are so grateful mm-hmm. for the outpouring of support we've gotten. And now you know we need just anyone, any little bit you have. Some people are saving up the gas money they're saving because they're not mm-hmm. driving into work. That's sending a really it in every good week. idea. You know, that's a look really, at like those I things. love that the the gas challenge. I th- I will definitely put that on my page. You have that commitment oh, for wonderful. me, and I will donate. Um, when you think about the, or if do you know offhand how much you all are trying to raise, or does it depend on how many artists keep reaching out? Is that what's going on? So we need another. We need at least another um, six hundred thousand dollars to meet the need of everyone that's applied. Wow. We have suspended applications right now because we have to raise these funds mm-hmm. first. If we get 700,000, we can reopen again mm-hmm. and keep serving people because we're barely meeting, you know, we're not even meeting the need for one month. And this is going to go longer, especially here in Seattle, as these cases keep rising. They're rising so fast. We don't even get numbers anymore. The state department can't keep track wow. of how many tests are coming in. So we absolutely need it. We are looking for any avenue. If you have an organization that you know likes to give, send them this information. 100%, every penny is going directly to artists. So we are working around the clock, a team of four, to send this money out all day, every day. We're putting our blood, sweat, and tears into keeping the arts alive in Seattle. These are mostly people of color as well. We are prioritizing communities of color, our trans community, and disabled artists. We have to keep them vibrant and strong. We have to all be here when this is over. So anything you can give, we would love it. You got it. Ijeoma, thank you for like leading out front sometimes. Thank you for leading just by example. Most times, um, thank you always for your challenging, piercing, transparent, um, bold words that... Um, will challenge someone as hard-headed and stubborn as me, like across the board. Like, I'm just so grateful um, for how you show up in the world, um, in writing, um, verbally, um, through your activism. I'm just grateful for it. And I admire you deeply. Um, I'm so thankful that we had the opportunity to connect. I'm so grateful for the beat tutorials that I'm going to name and claim. Um, for makeup, but most of all, I'm, I'm just um, thankful for who you are as a human and um, just say thank you, sis, and um, for representing the town so cold in so many amazing ways and for sharing space and time with me today. I'm grateful. So thank you. Thank you. It is wonderful. I love seeing you out there. Thanks for keeping the space going. We have to stay connected through this. You are a huge part of that. I appreciate you always. Love to you. E-hugs from far away. (laughs) Thank you so much. We're all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors. All we know is to fight. Pray. They see God in everything I write. Yeah.